So today we'll uh, continue our study of Christ's opening remarks of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9 to 14. So I'll invite you to turn to your Bibles. To Matthew chapter 24, we're going to get a little more context and read verses 1 to 14 together now. I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 24, verse 1 to 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him with buildings of the temple. Uh, to the, the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. These are the words of Christ our Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help together. Lord God, as we uh, receive your word with thanksgiving, I pray that by your grace and your spirit, you would make me uh, an able teacher today. And Lord, that you would open our ears. That we could understand the message that you have for your disciples, that you have for us today as we follow Christ. uh, That you would give us in it strength uh, to obey. Strength uh, to press on. Strength to endure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I picked up uh, the following story about a common slogan today from an article. It's from uh, just a website called The Church News. Uh, And and it goes like this. I kind of changed some of the wording for us. It said the Battle of Britain began in September 1940 when German bombers blasted London, which continued for 57 consecutive days, killing some 60,000 civilians in about 2 million homes, about, which was at that time about 60% of the homes in London uh, were destroyed. 
representing some of the darkest days in Britain's history. The Blitz brought to light the resilience and resolve of the people at the time who were encouraged to carry on as best they could. They sent their children to the care of mostly strangers in the relatively safe countrysides and villages. They would throw sand on fires ignited by bombs, survey damage to property, and they would just proceed to live day by day as, as things came. And during this time, a poster was created, but it was never used. And it had a red background with a crown at the top, and its capital letters in white carried the simple message, keep calm and carry on. Two and a half million copies were made, but it was never actually used. And it remained actually in obscurity for about 70 years from when it was made uh, until more recently, one of the two known existing copies today was found in a used bookstore uh, in Northumberland, England, in a box of books. And so, uh, so that's, again, that's where we, that, that phrase was kind of revived. Uh, Winston Churchill, the, the prime minister who rallied the people with his oratory uh, ab- 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 abilities, mostly through the medium of radio, He promised a time when they would meet the enemy on the beaches, on the landing strips. And in a way, keep calm and carry on seemed to be the crux of of his message throughout that time. To, to, To take care of business, to go to their jobs each day, to continue their work, to rally each each other, even in very difficult circumstances. And then, of course, there's that famous phrase he had. To never give up, never, 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 never give up. And verses 4 to 14 is really a single, as I said, it's a single unified passage. But in order to to dive a little deeper, I've broken it down between verses 4 and 8 last week. And then today, verses 9 to 14. And I I mentioned last week that I could label it, keep calm. And verses 9 to 14, we would, we would say, add to it, carry on. Or more specifically, verses 48, 4 to 8 is warning the disciples to beware of panicking, of, of being alarmed, and, and of being led astray in that time of panic to the preliminary signs of chaos that, begin to, that would be, begin to ensue, and instead to keep calm. To, to, to um, hold fast to the prophetic witness that they are receiving from the mouth of Christ here. And as they do so, verses 9 to 14 is as much of a, of a promise as it is a command that the gospel will carry on. As it is the, um, as it is the command to carry on the gospel. So we have a promise in one sense He's saying the gospel is going to carry on. And in another sense, there is a command, carry on in the gospel. Bring the gospel forward. Don't be hindered or led astray in the the task I've given you. Uh, It's appropriate just to mention for anyone visiting today, or maybe you you, uh, just haven't been paying attention today, so today's the first day you're tuning in. 
it's, it's important to explain why that, that where I'm going with this, how we're applying it. Um, that for the past couple of months, I've, I've been working through uh, explaining why I believe that verses 4 to 5 is Jesus' response to the disciples' question about the timing of God's judgment and the destruction of apostate Israel and of the temple, which he predicted in verse 2 that we read. So they're asking about that destruction, and Jesus is now answering that question. And since he says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's where I see the close of that first answer. And then, when we, and then, um, and then once we can confirm this local judgment upon the nation of Israel... That it indeed was completed when the Romans utterly flattened Jerusalem and her temple before that generation had passed away in 70 AD. So that's, we've been working over that. I'm not going to, we're not going to present that and and keep going over that. But it's helpful for you to know if if you're just jumping in with us today. And this means Jesus in our text today is preparing his disciples for the turbulent days ahead leading up to the temple's end. Preparing them that they might not only survive, but as we'll see, in in order that the gospel of the kingdom would thrive amongst the redeemed and the new creation of God, his church. And as they are simultaneously being rejected and thrusted out of their homes and synagogues and out of their communities and their own people, the gospel is going forth. The kingdom is advancing. So this becomes clearer in verses 9 to 12. So that's where we're going to start. Verses 9 to 12, the opening word then in verse 9 again confirms that we're just just continuing that previous thought regarding the beginning of the birth pains. And that Greek word tata can be translated either then or at that time. Then or at that time. So we are still in the we're still in that time. He's just he's saying then. He's, so he's adding on to it. But we're still in the same time. The, the preliminary stage leading up to the temple's destruction. So verse 9. Then they will declare, uh, deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus gave his disciples... A similar warning. And actually, maybe I'll read a little bit more here. Just so you can hear the, the, all of the words again. In verse 10, he continues, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so this is, uh, he, this is not the first time Jesus has said something like this. To his disciples, nor have we as readers been introduced to him saying something like this. If you, if you turn to Matthew chapter 10, in your, in your Bibles, Matthew 10, he's, he's sending out his disciples to proclaim the gospel throughout Israel in chapter 10. In verse 16, we see the same promise was given uh, in verse, uh, sorry, so from 16 to 23. We see the same promise given in verse 23. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And since they had been sent out with such a warning, right? So if, and if you read through that, we're not going to do it for t- sake of time. But he's warning them of being given up to tribulation and being put on trial and having to answer before kings, being betrayed by their brothers, given up by their brothers, by their own family. Since they had been sent out with that warning, they had presumably ministered and, and experienced such things. He warned them it would happen in, as they sent them out. The assumption might be made that the disciples are no stranger to this kind of persecution at this point and, and to the trials being described here. And, and maybe at this point it's like he's stating the obvious. But it's also very possible that they had come to hope that perhaps the worst was behind them. Right? Like that, that was bad. And they endured. The, the promise Jesus said, those who endure will be saved, they were delivered. It, it all went well. It went, as Jesus said, you know, a few. Like that's over. Now Christ is going to come in. Now his kingdom is going to be established. Now we're, now we're good to go. And that's what I think makes this an important and instructive reiteration of the kind of backstabbing persecution they must be ready to continue to endure as his disciples, as the message and the people of the crucified and risen Messiah would continue to spread and multiply, so would with that the hostility and the rejection of those uh, who did not believe him. So first we note from our text that the persecution and tribulation of verse 9 to 12 does not begin from outside their local communities, but from within. So verse 9 notes that such rejection of Christ and his disciples would then spread amongst the Gentiles and amongst the nations. Uh, Remember last week I noted uh, how the Roman Empire at the time was understood to be comprised of almost all of the major nations and peoples of what they understood to be the inhabited world at that time. So, so, for example, Josephus wrote, he said, almost every nation under the sun does homage to Roman arms. And then in the last, six, and then the last years, uh, in AD 64 to 68, just before the destruction in 70 AD, in those years leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, the Roman historian Tacitus, he speaks of Christians as universally being hated for their crimes. And again we have Jesus. And he, he told them this. And you will be hated by all nations. For my name's sake. You will be. And again. I just want to. As we, we can always apply. We have a context in which this was being delivered to. We can always take the principle and apply it to us today. And so I just wanted to stop and ask. You who identify as a disciple of Christ here today. Can you relate to this? And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Can you relate to that? Sometimes I can. I don't know. I was was convicted by that as I studied that this week. He's talent, and, and we're going to get, go on as we see there might be another reason why some of us aren't being hated by all nations. You're not going to be hated by all nations if you fall away. 
and you give up your brothers and you do what the world wants you to do, they're going to love you for that. Are you hated? For, again, not just because you deserve it and you're a, a jerk. For Christ's name's sake. I, and I wonder if, and this is my struggle. This is my, and I need to be held accountable to this. Proclaiming Christ must include not exclusively this. So some people, they, they, again, we've gone over this. People just love to... Some, you know, they, all they have is an axe to grind. So it can't be just that. But proclaiming, we, most of us aren't tempted with that. Most of us, we want to be nice. We want to be kind. We don't want to offend. So I'm speaking to, to that person, to me. I, you, need to, you need to know, proclaiming Christ must include the denouncing of our society's false idols and, and the acceptable evils in our society. Of, of na- naming and claiming what is evil, identifying it, being specific. What you are doing is evil. John 7 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you. He's saying that to his brothers. Because at that point, they, they were of the world. He said, but it hates me. Why? He says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. And Jesus had no problem when he saw specifically a work that was evil, calling it what it was. And that is why people hated him. So people don't just need to hear Christ, it is good that they hear Christ proclaimed positively as the Savior, as the one who will forgive our sins, but we must identify their sins. Now, verse 10 to 12 makes it clear that as the times get tough, the seeds that had initially sprang up amid rocky soil would wither away, as Jesus says in verse 10. And again, I'm going to try to help you to do, to do this along the way as well. But I hope you can see, if there's one point I can get you to see, that as I read this through a preterist perspective, that, that much of what Jesus is saying, um, that this was fulfilled, that it was a local warning of a, of a specific judgment, and it took place just as Christ said it would, that that is not to say that it cannot be applied to us today. That there are not principles that when we... Um, that when we walk in such a way as disciples of Christ, that we could not expect the same kind of response from the same enemy. And so as verse 10 to 12 makes it clear, okay, that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And so that's when that, that brings us back, I want, that, that's going to bring us back to, again, to be on guard, to be on the watch out, that the persecution there, again, note, is one another. It's a hate of one another. Uh, John chapter, 1 John chapter 2.18, right? Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now Antichrist have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. He's speaking past tense. They went out from us, 
But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out, he says. So you have a falling away in 1 John already. In 2 Timothy 1, 12, uh, 15. I'm just going to read some of these because I have a lot of passages to go through. If you, need to just, if you want to write them down. Because you, you probably won't be able to turn as much. But you're welcome to try. 2 Timothy 1.15, he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. All who are in Asia, he's saying, turned away from me. Among whom are Phigelus uh, and uh, Hermogenes. He later adds in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The historian Tacitus alludes to such an apostasy uh, happening during the persecution of Nero during the the late 60s, saying that first, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested, then on their information, so on the Christians that he arrested, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. In other words, you had them betraying one another, giving one another up. Judas, of course, uh, would prove to be a leading example of the kind of betrayal that Christ uh, is warning of. But Judas was merely the first in a long line of traitors among the brethren. And Jesus is preparing his disciples to not be caught off guard by such devastating betrayal. So I just wanted to help us as we apply it for us. These warnings of internal betrayal and persecution are so important because this is exactly the kind of opposition that no one accounts for, that no one sees coming, right? Opposition and betrayal from the people we love, from the people that we break bread with. And this is what makes it, uh, us particularly vulnerable to being blindsided or even led astray, right? That's his constant warning, that you be... That you not be led astray. Well, why? Because it's coming from within. You're not going to be led astray by this, the person on the outside who you, you know is your enemy. You know they don't have your best interests in mind. You're not going to listen to them. But how easily we can be led astray by those from within our circles whom we trust. We expect... Uh, you know, those who are out... Those who we know hate us. Those who are our enemies... Right? We're ready for that. And that's usually when we're most vulnerable to being taken from the inside. Right? I, don't, I can't tell you how many Christians I know, they've told me they're ready. They're ready for when that gun is going to be put to their head. And they're going to say, do you believe in Christ or not? Everyone is ready for that. And I'm saying, stop worrying about, stop saying that because it's blinding you from the actual persecution that, is, that has been on our, that's in our back door and will come again. So verses 11 to 12 basically illustrate two of the key catalysts of apostasy and betrayal in the church. I mean, they're not the source. The source is is sin and rebellion. But these are the catalysts of of apostasy. And that is of, it's going going to accelerate what is already there. What, What is already true of some of us even maybe sitting here today. 
And that is deception and the love of sin. Deception and the love of sin. Verse 11, we have, it deals with deception. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Right? It'll be a lot easier to start saying things that are not, start saying things that go with the crowd. Start saying things that, that, work, that work with the way uh, and tossing to and fro with the winds of, of the culture. Acts 13.6 records, so, so a, a record of this happening in the early church. Acts 13.6. Uh, they had gone through the whole island as far as uh, Paphos, and uh, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. Right? And so we, I, I mean, I could go through that story, but uh, Paul basically calls him out for what he was there. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he identifies that Alexander the coppersmith, he says, did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Uh, just yesterday, just yesterday, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they paid us a visit. And what do you know? What do you, guess what they started? Uh, Rosie was the, the one who goes, went to the door. And um, so I don't really know exactly how it all went, but she, she summarized it for me. Where do you think they began the conversation with? Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Look what is going on in the world. Look at the chaos. What are you doing? The end is coming. Are you ready? Right? And, and they, have, they have an answer for it. Right? They, they, they have a, a solution of, that, of, of the kingdom that will bring peace. Right? For you, for your children. By the way, this is the past chapter where pretty much every, like, if you look at the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, they, they all, if they don't start from Matthew 24, it's pretty early in there where, where they're taking advantage of people's fears, their vulnerability to chaos in society happening. And they're saying, you know, this is, God's coming. Are you ready? And it, and it makes People vulnerable to be led astray. And I, and I just want to say this. I, I'm, in some degree, even this week, I've, I really wrestled this week as I pre- was preparing this message. Because I'm, I'm, in some degree, I'm getting tired of, um, of the information. And you might feel, feel that way too. Like I'm having, like of going through some of the historical record and and there's a lot, more, a, little, a lot more lecture going on these days and a little less preaching, exhortation to, and, you know, to carry on in, in faith in Christ. And I'm, you know, I'm getting a little tired of that. And I'm, I'm, and I'm kind of, and that's probably a good tension to be in. But I was convicted and encouraged when I, when I read this verse uh, that as much as we need to be our theology to be applied and we need to be motivated and inspired and encouraged to press on, we need our theology to be solid and rooted uh, in, the, in the times when, there is, when, when, when we are grounded, when there is a little breathing room because hard times are coming 
And, when, and it's when those times hit, when, it, when we become very vulnerable to following this doctrine and that doctrine and this movement and that movement. And so we're going we're gonna to push through this. And, and I pray and trust that the Lord will continue to teach us and instruct us. Um, and that that would not also take away from our joy, though, as, as we come to worship together and hear his word um, as his people. During the war just before Jerusalem's destruction and the mass holocaust of the Jews, the eyewitness account of Josephus looking back on those events, uh, he wrote of false prophets who would arise and they basically convinced the people to stay in Jerusalem. That, that, that they were to wait, to stay and stand guard on the temple because, and they must wait upon the Lord that he would deliver them. Right? And they were slaughtered because of that. As we'll see later, the Christians, they heeded the warning. They saw the army standing there and they fled. And many Jews were saved. Because again, the early church were Jews. God's redeemed people. He, was, he, he showed himself faithful to his, rem, to his remnant who cast their faith upon the Messiah. In verse 12, he says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Again, this is the warning they needed to heed. There's a general principle to be acknowledged that, that this generally is what happens. Lawlessness, of course, is in reference to the, to the law of God, specifically, to describe the conduct of our lifestyle, which is contrary to, that, to God's law, to his, to his holy and righteous will. Matthew 7, 21, uh, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, right, who acts out the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then, of course, and then he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not uh, prophesy in your name, cast out demons, right? We did, we did a lot of talking about you. He says, And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness you doers of lawlessness right you hypocrites you, they, you would you say one thing you speak niceties of christ and his kingdom in one sense and then you live an entirely different way contrary to his will and then of course this is a it's just a, a, a very helpful connection to, to observe Contrary to popular definitions in the use of the word love today, far from being contrary, right? We often set up love as being like, and and the law as your opposites, and you got to choose one or the other. But the, the Bible actually identifies true love as being the fulfillment of the law. That that the law is our standard by which we love. Romans 13, 8, right? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Well, how do we love? We, he says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. You are loving your neighbor. But when someone's livelihood is being threatened, when your job is on the line, when your reputation is on the line, when push comes to shove, 
So it is that the love of the comforts and pleasures of this world will so easily entangle and lead to compromise when allowed to fan into flame. And it will effectively stifle. Like, you know, maybe there was a time. Generally, there's, I know a lot of good people, right? A lot of great people. They'll make sacrifices. They'll serve their community. They're out and about. But, right, squeeze them of all those resources, of, of the, the things, of having everything that they want and everything the way they want it. And the sacrifices that you're so eager to make for the benefit of your brother... They just dwindle away, don't they? And the love grows cold, right? There's no joy in it anymore. Uh, The root here of a cold and, and loveless church is that it is full of sin. It's full of rebellion. And, um, I... So the answer is not to get rid of the law. The answer is not to, to get rid of righteousness and obedience to the Lord, but that we do that in faith, that God will bless us, and He will. As the love of many will grow cold, as lawlessness increases, love will decrease. I'm not going to go through it now. I wanted to like literally just walk you through 2 Timothy 3. Maybe write that down if you want to look at it later. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But he talks about, just so you have an idea, it opens with, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient. He's describing lawlessness and its effect on the community and its effect on their persecution. Paul then goes on to say in verse 11, He says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul was experiencing the very thing that Jesus said would take place. But notice, and this brings us into verse 13, he was also experiencing the promise that Christ gives to his disciples. He's, he's, right, he's talking about these persecutions that he endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Well, verse 13, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is both a responsibility laid and a promise that is given there. Charles Spurgeon said that he who uh, he would have them remember that it is not the man who starts in the race, but the one who runs to the goal, who wins the prize. Right. It's, it's it, again, it's not it does not say much of a man, of a woman who starts off on and, and they're starting in a great direction. I mean, that's great and all. But to the one who does not finish it, it's of no effect, of no um, value of no honor and glory, no prize, reward. But if we have a responsibility to endure, right? In a sense, this is not—it's not a command. It's, it's, it's as much as it's just a statement of reality that he's giving us to the one who endures. 
But if we have, and if, so, but we, we see there's a responsibility given to us there to endure. Endure to what end? Right? Endure in what? And as we set our hands to the plow without looking back, what, why endure? What reasons get, is given? And again, that's where we're given the promise in that same verse. Because we hold fast, we endure in that promise, as he says, that we will be saved. It's obedience, it's endurance that is rooted and grounded in the promise of the word of God. Trusting that he will be faithful to to fulfill it. That is, you will be saved. That is, he's speaking here that you will be delivered from, the, from your persecutors, that you'll be delivered from, the fault, from the, those who would lead astray. You'll be delivered from those who give you up, from the, from the enemy's intentions and snares. And note this, he says, even, and he said that in verse, verse 9, that that, that that could include you dying. So the, the salvation he's talking about there is not a, a being delivered from death necessarily, from physical harm necessarily. They could, you, 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 he says that some of you will be delivered up to death. But that you'll be delivered. But that the very uh, thing that the enemy seeks to quench. By our death. Or by uh, your persecution. By uh, stifling uh, or, or stealing or pillaging your home. Or, or, or whatever it is. The very thing the enemy seeks to quench by our death has so often proven to be the seed of life and growth of Christ's redemption and his reign. And that is the gospel of salvation. Right? It's not, it's not so much me that they want to be done with. It's my message. It's my Christ. It's my Lord that they are seeking to stifle when they, seek to, when they oppose me. And so even death itself cannot stop our Lord. And that's where we have verse 14. And he says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, why emphasize advancing throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to his disciples in our text? Because some will, and we'll see in a moment here, some people will use that to say, see, this wasn't fulfilled. He's making a point. Like, it's not just, you know, the Roman world. It's the whole world uh, as a testimony to all the nations. Well, first, I just want to clarify. So what, why, is, why might he be saying that? Be, because there's a significant shift in the, the disciples' mission that is about to unfold following his death and his resurrection and ascension to his heavenly throne. So again, if you recall earlier in Matthew 10, where you have much of the same message that was given to his disciples as he sent them to Israel and encouraged to endure to the end, to whom specifically were they sent to at that point in Matthew 10? In verse 5, Matthew 10, verse 5, it says, Jesus sent out 
instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, so Gentiles mixed with the Jews, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So a very exclusive and, and local mission. And he warns them, of, uh, and, he, and then he gives them the warnings of the kind of persecutions and, and to re- be ready to endure. Such an opening and unlimiting uh, expansion of what was previously, so in Matthew 10 was a very local and exclusive mission, explains why Jesus is now using language which elaborates how global uh, this mission is, is going to become. Right? They, they need Jesus to be, if he's not absolutely clear on this, you can see why it would be a little fuzzy when before he's saying, don't go to the world, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the Israelites. And now he's saying, the Israelites are going to persecute you, they're going to attack you, they're going you know, to betray you, and be ready to go. Now when we read through a modern lens, it is understandable that many of us have read this, this verse. That's, this is how I first approached it. And I concluded that this part could not possibly have been fulfilled before the destruction of the temple then. And, and in some ways, it kind of closed the deal for me for even considering it as an option. And it, I, I get it. It's understandable to see how that's possible. Like you, you look at that, you read it, and you think, okay, that hasn't happened yet. It's still, still to come. But that is, is not the case when we remember that Jesus is speaking here to his disciples who would have understood Christ's reference to the whole world from the perspective of a first century Jew living in Israel during the height of the Roman Empire's expansion to the ends of the inhabitable world at the time. And it's helpful to observe that the Greek word even for world there is not the more common word cosmos, right? Cosmos is, it's referring to every, like it's, that's the biggest, you know, um, picture you could give. But it's the, the word uh, oikumene, oikumene, which comes from the word oikos. You might be familiar, oikos meaning house, okay? So oikumene. And the, and the, the Greek-English lexicon in the New Testament it offers these definitions. It'll be helpful for you. It says, uh, of oikumene, it says that, that the earth, um, or these translations, the earth as inhabited, an inhabited area, or exclusive of the heavens above and neither regions, nether regions, the inhabited earth or the world. Okay? So first it gives us the earth as an inhabited area, uh, another, the next definition it says is the world as an administrative unit. In other words, the Roman Empire. Uh, and then ver- uh, the, the third definition is all inhabitants of the earth. And one, one example it gives of that definition is Luke 2.1. So I want you to, tr- if, if you want to see this, or just remember in your mind, Luke 2.1. This, this word for world is not used anywhere else in Matthew. Elsewhere, it's the word cosmos. When in Matthew 28, when he says to go into all the world, he says cosmos. 
But here, it's th- this one word. It's not used in Matthew. If you look in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, he says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay? A, a, a decree goes out, and that's where you have, right? And so Joseph, he needs to go down to, Beth- to Bethlehem, that whole story. It, the, the, the decree was that all the world should be registered. It's assumed that all the, all the world, as they used that language, was registered. Or at least he wouldn't have decreed it. And Acts 11, verse 27, we read this earlier due to the, past, the, the famine passage. Exodus, uh, Acts, sorry, Acts 11, verse 27. Uh, he speaks of, In these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So again, you have a famine that comes to all the world. The same, exact same uh, phrase given there. It's, it's the same Greek word. They say all, but whole is the same word in, in, in English. And then regarding the gospel being proclaimed throughout the, the, that world that the Bible is, is pointing us to, is, is, is using that language for, um, before the temple's end. Is, is, I just want to clench that before we close up here. I just want you to first consider Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 5. They were dwelling in, Jer- in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. I, you can't get any more, uh, I don't know, unless there's other heavens that you could possibly think of. There's only every nation under heaven. This is at Pentecost. Right? And they came together and, and the, they were speaking in, in these tongues. And uh, um, are not, in verse, he says, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that all these people from all these nations, they're hearing them speak in their own tongue from the nations they're coming from, from all the nations under heaven? And it lists, it says, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. Right? Like, it, right off the bat, okay, uh, you, you have all these nations coming together. They're hearing the gospel proclaimed. Now, Acts 17, 2, 6. It, uh, Paul, he went in, and as was his custom on the three uh, Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that, uh, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then, and then you have, um, there's kind of a mob that is stirred up because there's people that don't like this message. You have the persecution, which he says, would, what Jesus said would happen, going on. Um, and it says... In verse 6, Acts 17, verse 6, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The whole world is being turned upside down by the gospel. It's being, just, it's being shaken to its core. In Acts, this is the early church. Romans 1, 8 
First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Halato kosme. Uh, there it uses the word cosmos. It, again, you can't, it can't be any more extensive than that word. It's been proclaimed, he says, in all the world, the whole world. Romans 10, 13, we're all familiar with earlier. Everyone who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Then he goes on to talk about the need. Well, how will they believe unless they hear, right? And how will they hear unless we send somebody to go? And then in verse 13, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and, and so he goes on to make that argument. And he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, Romans 10 verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Past tense. Have they not heard? Indeed, they have, he says. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Colossians 1.3, Paul is praising God, uh, the, um, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since he's heard of their faith, how the gospel has gone, for, has gone forth. And verse 6, he says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you. And then later in Colossians 1.23, he, he speaks of them continuing uh, in, their, in the gospel, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He says, which has, past tense, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, that's just, just throwing it at you, just kind of scattering it on you just to, to hear it. But to kind of leave it for yourself, to just to look through it yourself with your own eyes. That indeed, this very thing that Christ said would happen before the end came, before the end of the temple would, would, would come. That the gospel was going to the whole world and to the, as a testimony to all the nations. Just quickly as, we, as I wrap this up. Just as nothing could hinder the proclamation of the kingdom throughout the whole world in a matter of a generation. Does that sound impossible to you? Does that sound like that is something that only God could do and not man could do? Because that, that is the power of the gospel for salvation that I believe in. And just because I'm saying that it, it's happened. Again, it doesn't say, well, okay, it's done. Who cares? Does that not encourage you today? That the gospel within a matter of a single generation, from, from, from one, from our Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve, among whom was a betrayer himself, and to go forth within a generation to the ends of the, to, of the world? We ought to be emboldened in our faith, strengthened and encouraged. And, and again, I'm, I'm convinced, and, and we ought to be more so, if anything, if the reason we're not encouraged and we're not emboldened today is because we aren't yet walking in the steps that would cause us to be hated by all nations and to be persecuted and to be betrayed yet. 
Be faithful and, and, and boldly proclaim in Christ. And then we'll start to see those things happen. Then we'll need to receive the encouragement that his disciples receive. And then we're going to see, I believe, the gospel go forth like crazy like it did in that time. But it's not going to come without sacrifice. It's not going to come without boldness. It's not going to come without enduring the difficult times that will lay ahead. If God is going to bless the church, if revival is going to come, so are hard times. So be careful when you pray for revival, when you pray that God's Spirit would come and work among us, because it's also going to come at a price, at a cost. But my friends, is it not worth it? Is it not? And we talked earlier in Sunday school about you know, the reward of the flesh, like the, the, earth, the fleshly reward versus the eternal rewards. Uh, it's like, it, it's, it's really a, you can't compare it. Your responsibility is not to see that the gospel be received or be proven successful. Like that's not your, as you, and that wasn't the disciples' job, I'm saying it's not your job as we follow after them in their footsteps. It is not your responsibility to see that the gospel be received, that we, that we go about it, that we, that we see that it is successful, and that, it, it, you know, that, it, it, that we work it all out. Rather, the, with the, the admonition that the disciples are given, and our responsibility today, is to endure. To endure in the mission and calling that he has given us to the end that he has appointed for us. That's, that's what your job is. To be faithful to his appointed end. And the gospel will go forth. His name will be blessed. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word and for how you have directed and guided your church and how we see it. Um, We see it in how you taught and instructed your disciples and in the words that we've been going over. Lord, and we thank you that it continues to guide us and it continues to instruct us. That it it was not written for their sake only, as Peter talks about the Old Testament scriptures, but for our benefit also. And so I pray that, again, we would be Admonished that we would be that we would be convicted and uh, corrected today, if in any area in which we've become slothful or apathetic, Lord, and that you would strengthen our resolve uh, and, and our call in the gospel. That if there be any here who has not humbled themselves before Christ. Lord, that they would count the cost. That they would, that they would not just jump in without and, and um, thinking, because right now, you know, we're surrounded by people who will applaud and, and pat our backs if we do things for Christ and if we follow him. But Lord, that they would understand what has been said here, that, as, that the life of following Christ is a costly one. It's, it's, it's an enduring race, Lord, and that... But that they would, as they count the cost, they would also see the promise that is given there. 
that the, that the, that the one who endures will be saved, Lord, and that, um, that you would encourage all of us by that word, by that, that promise that you're given, that we're given, and that, um, that you would keep us, Lord, in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.